okay? So, uh, amen, amen. So, anyways, um, we started out in this series in Luke chapter 12 discussing the parable of the rich fool. Remember that? Raise your hand if you were here when that was preached, okay? All right. Does anyone want to speak to me about a takeaway that you, that you had from that passage in Luke, Luke 12, that parable of the rich fool? And yes, that's not rhetorical. I expected you to speak uh, to me. Uh, I, I can hear you. So don't worry. Don't worry about saying anything wrong or, or um, thinking that this is a rhetorical question. I'm going to go ahead and call you out because you look like you want to speak. Yes, sir, that's you. Yeah. Right, so, yeah, that's Luke 16. I think that was just a few weeks ago. But this is at the very start in Luke 12, talking about the, right, 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 different parable. Okay, all right, that's fine. Hey, but just be prepared. I'm coming back to you. All right, all right, great. All right, so the rich fool, Luke 12, you can open your Bible and just go ahead and check it out. I'm fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, all right, talk to us, talk to us. What, what was the takeaway? Right, right, right. Yeah. Right, right. Amen. Exactly. Amen. Amen. That's right. That's right. And I think we can all agree with that. We've got to be careful with where we store our treasures, what we claim to be a treasure, and how we go about investing it, right? So that's exactly the rich fool. All right. Then we went to Luke chapter 18, and I'll combine a couple here just for the sake of time. Luke chapter 18 was the parable of the tax collector, but then also in Luke 14 it was the parable of the wedding feast. And honestly, there's a... a a common truth in both of those. Um, so you've got the parable of the tax collector, the parable of the wedding feast, Luke 18, Luke 14. If you remember that, somebody speak to me about what you took away from those two Sundays of teaching. Amen. Yeah, right, right. That's exactly right. Right, so self-righteousness has no place right? It's, it's his righteousness, correct? And what we want to do is not exalt ourselves, because unfortunately that's going to result in humbling from God, but rather we want to be humble before God and he will exalt us. And then in Luke chapter 16, uh, we dealt with the rich man and Lazarus. I'm coming back to you, brother. The rich man and Lazarus. And the takeaway there was That's fine. I won't pick on you anymore, all right? Y'all heard him. I'm done. I'm done with him. All right, let me pick on somebody else. The rich man and Lazarus, what was your takeaway there? Yes, ma'am. Right, yeah. 
right. Right, right, right. 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 Right, right. Okay, all right, all right, all right, that, that's great, here, you want to, no, I'm just kidding, all right, yes, amen, amen to that, amen to that, amen, amen, and then, and then we get to Luke chapter 18 again um, with the persistent widow, and then also in Luke 11, you're dealing with the Lord's Prayer, but there's a parable right after that, and it really doesn't have a title other than what I like to call Ask, Seek, and Find, um, so those two also had a common theme. And that was, if you remember, the theme of, or what was your takeaway on those two? So the persistent widow was Luke 18. That was two weeks ago. And then Luke 11, right after the Lord's Prayer, ask, seek, and find. Yes, absolutely. You, you looked at my notes, didn't you? That's literally what I wrote. Keeping a posture of persistence in prayer is from those two parables, okay? Now, you might be asking yourself, how does he know all of this? Well, I asked your pastor uh, what, what he'd been preaching on. And for me, it's important because the Lord has called me to preach, but I really like to teach, so I like to connect stuff. I also like to engage. And so as long as you are still comfortable with this environment that we've created, I would like to deal with the parable that I've been assigned to today. Are y'all good with that? Everybody good? All right, so you know what you're getting into, and you agree, right? Okay, all right, so we're going to be in the book of Matthew. All of these other parables has been in the book of Luke, swapping over to the book of Matthew, chapter 13, Matthew chapter 13. And we're going to be dealing with four verses, starting at verse 47, Matthew chapter 13, starting at verse 47. And the name of this parable, as we have been given to it, given it, given it to us from our Bible translators, uh, is the parable of the net, or your translation might say the dragnet, parable of the net or the dragnet. By the way, I'm coming from the English Standard Version, so if there's a difference in how your Bible reads uh, than mine, and it's uncomfortable for you or you need clarification, raise your hand and say, hey, can we talk about that um, as, as we read together? Uh, this one is not too difficult to understand, but I do know that there are sometimes some, some issues uh, in the translations. So we're in Matthew chapter 13, starting at verse 47, and Jesus says this, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate evil from the righteous and throw them away into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. May we pray together. Father God, we ask that you would be the gracious God that you have so consistently been in our lives. Whether we recognize it or not, you are the God of grace. 
we can just take that one thing that you did in our history by sending your son Jesus while we were yet sinners. An atonement gift offering. You've given us a way to know you. You've given us a restoration of right relationship with yourself. What was broken in the garden through Adam is restored in Christ. I'm thankful, Father, that you have been so gracious to not only send your son, but offer your son as a free gift to anyone who would have faith in him. And with that said, Father, I pray that if there is anyone here that does not know you, does not know the gift of salvation in Christ, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. Father, I'm thankful for your salvation. I'm also thankful, Father, for your word. Thank you for this beautiful, inspired, infallible, inerrant word. I'm thankful that we can stand on the truth that we hold in this book. I'm thankful that we can know that it's literally your breath breathed into these pages and onto these pages you have used through supernatural power. Men writing, you instructing, and you've given us this word that never returns void, that's sharper than any two-edged sword, that cuts us to the heart and reveals to us who we are. You've given us a word that can change our lives forever, a word that we can depend on. And Father, I pray that you would do now what we always ask you to do, and that is to root us deeper in it. And as my sister has already prayed this morning, remove this preacher and his silliness and his nonsense from this moment and put your word on display. Because it's that truth and that truth alone that we need. It's that truth and that truth alone that can change us. It's that truth and that truth alone that will feed us, Father. So may it be so. Forgive us of our sins. Give us ears to hear. As your spirit is responsible for, give us ears to hear. Give us a mind to understand and comprehend. Give us a heart to believe and trust. Give us hands and feet to carry out what we receive from your word today. And continue to make City Light Church, the church that's shining the light in Vicksburg through these transformed lives. Speak to us about this parable today. And it's in your name we pray and everyone says, amen, amen. So to give you a little contextual background here, you've got in the book of Matthew this desire from Matthew the author to display and prove that Jesus Christ is the true king, and specifically the king of Israel. We see that in chapter 1 where he gives us this genealogy pulling Jesus of Nazareth down from David, the king. Matthew's effort in writing this gospel is to do just that. Unfortunately, by the time we get to chapter 13 in his gospel, he's already been rejected in his kingship. Even though he validated himself not only in word, but also in deed through various miracles and the authority with which he spoke, he was still rejected by the very people he was sent to save. And we know this. But it's important, particularly for this chapter that we're in today, to understand that not only is he rejected by sinners, but specifically in the historical context of this book, he is rejected by Israel, the Jews of the day. They're expecting a warrior Messiah to come. 
They're expecting this Christ who was going to be a king that made immediate retribution for all of the hurts and all of the pains that they had experienced over years of conquest from other nations, actually judgment from their God. So as Jesus came teaching and preaching the truth of what the law actually was in him fulfilled, they didn't see it, they didn't get it. And they rejected him. So we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 13 dealing with a whole new thing that the Jews didn't get, didn't look for, had no idea that they should expect it. And that was Christ speaking about a time that the Old Testament did not make clear. And that's the time of the church. It's the age of grace. It's the time that we're living in right now. It's the mystery that Jesus spoke about himself. It's the mystery that the Apostle Paul speaks about to the Ephesians. It's the time in which the Jews failed to see that Christ and God were about bringing all who would believe into the true nation of righteousness. So here we are in Matthew 13 again, dealing with seven parables from Christ, talking about a time that we are living in after he's been rejected by his own people as king. So of course we're going to find ourselves talking about the kingdom of heaven in ways that the Jews didn't get because they had already rejected it. Also in ways that the Jews didn't get because they had no comprehension of what the church was going to be. So Christ is laid out for the, them these seven parables. He gives us the parable of the sower. He gives us in Matthew chapter 13 the purpose of the parables. If you remember, he says, I say these things in a clouded, shrouded way. This is Matthew's paraphrase. So that those who do know can know more and those who don't know not get it at all. He gives us uh, the parable of the weeds. He gives us the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven. He gives us the parable of... The hidden treasure, it gives us the parable of the pearl of great value, which I think we're going to be talking about next week. And I say we, I mean you, because um, I'm not going to be here. And then he also gives us this parable of the net. In all of these parables, Christ is discussing a kingdom that was unfamiliar, unknown to the people that he was speaking to. But he was discussing it in an authoritative way because he is the king over that kingdom. So as it relates to this parable, um, I'm thankful that Pastor Brian gave me this uh, as a parable to teach. But um, quite honestly, I feel like he, you have been cheated because the parable is self-explanatory. Uh, so let me read it for you again and, and help you understand what I mean by that. So just these four verses, Matthew 13, verse 47 starting, it says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that is thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it's full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers and threw away the bad. Verse 49, we have the immediate explanation of the parable. Okay? So Jesus says, So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the reason why I say I feel like you've been cheated is because these words, as one scholar put it, really just need us to sit, contemplate, ponder, and not necessarily really expound on. However, I believe the Lord has a word for us today. 
even though Christ gives us this explanation immediately and we don't have to be like the disciples and say, hey, Jesus, what are you talking about? We don't get these parables that you're speaking in. There's still a, a, a common misconception about this particular parable because a lot of people often read this and immediately think evangelism, which is the act of trying to share the gospel with others and have them come to Christ. And, of course, there is a theme of that as it relates to casting nets and bringing people into the kingdom, right? We can all agree with that. But unfortunately, as often as this ser- or parable is preached on or about in sermons, the main theme is not the theme of evangelism, but rather the theme of God's complete sovereign control of salvation. And if I were to give you one point or ask you to take away one thing, it would be, I hope, at the end of this, an understanding that our God is in complete control in his sovereignty over salvation. Man is not. No other force is. It is God and God alone that controls salvation. And to that end, Jesus is speaking about the kingdom because it's the ultimate salvation that he's referring to here. And in that, he is saying... Not the fishers of men, the disciples, are out here casting a net, but rather he and his sovereignty with the use of his angels are going to be casting that net, dragging it in, and sorting things out. So if you don't mind, I'd like to dig in a little bit deeper here and pull out some things. There are other themes, not just the possible theme of evangelism, not the definite theme of God's sovereignty over salvation, but also the theme of God's sovereignty over his election of those whom he shall save. The Lord said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will show grace to whom I will show grace to. And as it relates to us from the Apostle Paul, therefore it does not depend on man's exertion or will or effort or work. Our salvation is by the Lord, it's for the Lord, and it's from the Lord we got to take that away. As a matter of fact, I could close the book up now, walk off, and if you have that, you're good. But we do want to dig deeper. So there's that theme, but there's some other elements. And the backside of that election is that there are those who do not know the Lord, who will not know the Lord, and who are and will be spending eternity separated from the Lord in a place where there is a fiery furnace and there's anguish, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. And I like to pause here when I talk about hell in this way because unfortunately I believe we also have come to a place in our modern westernized society, Christianity, where we get uncomfortable with that concept. And and even to back it up a little bit, we, we get uncomfortable with the definite distinguishment between those who are held in the hand of Jesus and those who are not. And it's a discomfort that is not only a sociological discomfort, a cultural discomfort, but it's a very personal discomfort because we're like, where am I at in that scheme, in that economy? So maybe the Lord will speak to that for us today as well. So the parable goes as it goes. Fishermen cast out this net. If you're knowledgeable about catfish farming, it's the same thing as a seine. Does anybody know what seining is? You can raise your hand. Some of you do, some of you don't, right? Okay. 
It's a big drag net. It's this huge net, often in this period of time, carried between two vessels, has buoys on top and weights on the bottom. They cast it down, they drive it, and they pull it towards the shore. It drags the bottom. It collects tons of fish, lots of fish, all kinds of fish. It's in contrast to like regular fishing, right? Who was I talking to about fishing? I think it was the buff security guard that's out there. Um, what's his name? Remind me of that guy's name. All right, make sure you told him I was, I was talking about how buff he is and um, that I'm on his side, okay? All right. He was talking about fishing or something. It's different than like just regular fishing where you catch one fish at a time. It's this big, massive operation of dragging them all to the shore. It's commercial fishing, industrialized fishing. It's a desire to catch many at once. So as the parable goes, this net is cast out, and this net is brought to shore, and it's emptied. And when it's emptied, people sit down, and they say, this is a good fish, this is a bad fish. I am trying so hard not to quote Dr. Seuss right now. Okay? It, I, I promise you in my prayers working on this sermon, if, if you're familiar with the Dr. Seuss story of the good fish, the bad fish, the red fish, the blue, all right, I'm going to stop. Um, it, it's just been creeping in my mind. I have five kids, by the way, and uh, they are 14 to 7, so there's, there's a lot of, I mean, we can talk. Paw Patrol, we can talk. I, anything you want to know. Ninja Turtles, I'm, 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 I'm that old too. Or, all right, let me get back on the point. So, they're sitting on the shore, they've emptied the net, and they're separating the good from the bad. Makes sense. Simple parable. But what's interesting about this parable is that Jesus goes immediately to the explanation, even though it is so simple. Some of his parables aren't so simple, and he takes a while to explain them. But with this one, he says it directly. It makes sense to his audience because most of them were fishermen, and then he immediately explains it. So he says, verse 49, so it will be. And if you're like I am and like to mark my Bible up, I would underline that phrase. So it will be at the end of the age. When everything is done, when everything's said for, when the Lord returns, when it's over with, when he comes to wrap everything up, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels, not fishers of men, not evangelists, that's not who we're talking about, just to go back and to hit that point again. But the angels themselves, these messengers of God, these workers for God, they will come out and they will separate the evil from the righteous. And we have to make sure that we understand that there are evil and there are righteous. And we have to be comfortable with the fact that we have to call evil, evil, and righteous, righteous, because our lives depend on it. We need to be able to say within us, there's evil, there's righteousness. Is there evil? Is there righteousness? We need to be able to stand before. You can't appreciate God's grace if you don't understand your own sin. Amen? Right? So they're evil and they're righteous. And the angels, they're going to separate them out. And, of course, the righteous are going to be kept because they have purpose. That's a neat thing about this fish illustration you know, the fish that were good, what were they good for? Sustenance. They were good for sale, for commerce. The bad ones had no purpose. They were useless. It reminds me of what is said in the book of Revelation about 
the water that's lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. You know, it's talking about purposeness, pur- purposefulness there. Having a purpose, ha- having a use. And so here are these fish that are good, they have a purpose. And the ones that are evil, they are useless. And the angels, they're going to take the good ones to where they're supposed to be with God forever in glory. Amen. And the ones that are not are going to the fiery furnace. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So not only is it important for us to be able to say there's evil and there's righteousness, but it's also important for us to agree with the word of God that there is a place for the righteous and there is a place for evil. Now, um, we don't talk about denominations a whole lot, but, but I came up uh, from the Pentecostal church. Uh, my mother was an addict, and sometimes she would go to rehab, and I would live with a Pentecostal pastor, but then also the Southern Baptist Church. Um, so in, in, in those olden days, I'm not trying to date myself, but in those olden days, we talked a lot about heaven and hell. And specifically as it related to evangelism, when I was in the Pentecostal pastor's house, there was always a revival. I don't think there was ever a church service on a Sunday that wasn't called a revival. We can talk about that later. There was always a revival. There was always a revivalist, as they were referred to. And there was always conversation about heaven and hell. And even in the Southern Baptist Church, it was the same thing. There was always this conversation about heaven and hell as a tool for you to make a decision. Now, I'm not trying to promote or discourage you from discussing or using the concept of heaven and hell for your evangelism. But what I do want to say is that, A, we don't talk about it enough. Because if you'll back that thought up, we're uncomfortable with saying there's evil and there's righteousness. There's a distinction between the two. And B, it's just not cool to preach hell and say you need to be saved. So maybe that's why Pastor Brian gave this to me. I don't know. Is is he, you know, he's setting me up here, right? But there's definitely a place for the righteous and a place for evil. And eternally, that place exists forever. And if I were like one of those old head preachers in either denomination, I would say, where do you want to spend that eternity? Smoking or non? Right? That is one of the oldest old head preacher phrases that I could come up with right now, right? So you're free to use that because I I stole it from them. So if this parable is not about evangelism and it is about God's absolute sovereign control over salvation, then what does that mean for us? And if it is so plainly spoken and Christ so quickly explained it, and honestly all we need to do is just ponder on it and not try to expound it, what are we doing here? So I want to give you a few things that I think you can apply this message to in your lives and maybe a few things that you can take away with you in that application. First and foremost, in redundancy, because I'm a preacher, and your own pastor said that's what preachers do. They say things over and over again. He just said it this morning. God is sovereign over salvation completely and only. Second, in this parable, as it relates to that truth, I believe there are a few questions that pop up in our minds. We've already danced all around them. 
That's another thing preachers do. They, they, they set up this big picture, you know, when they really could just get to the point. And they're like, man, we're really here this long when you could have said that a little while ago, right? I think there are a few questions that naturally arise. I want to frame these questions um, in a specific way, and there are three that I want to make sure that we're asking ourselves as it relates to us experiencing this parable, but also trying to understand this parable. The first question is this, who are the bad fish? The second question, because I see some of you taking notes, and I won't dance around, I'll let you be consistent here. The second question is, why are there bad fish? And the third is, am I a bad fish? You'll notice that I did not speak about the good fish because the negative proves the positive kind of stuff. Y'all are all intelligent, so I know that you get that. So let's go to the first question. And it might not imply what you think it implies. That question is, who are the bad fish? If God is the only sovereign controller of salvation then who are these bad fish? How does that relate to his sovereignty over salvation? The answer to that is, it's none of your business. The question still remains, because we ask it all the time. We want to be able to distinguish. And I'm not saying that we can't, because... There's a lot in God's word that says that we can tell if someone is righteous or if someone is not. But there is also a lot in God's word that says salvation has nothing to do with us and everything to do with God. And unfortunately, sometimes we find ourselves thinking about stuff like this where the fish that are good are going to be gathered where they're supposed to. The bad fish are going to burn up in hell. We want to say, yeah, that one's going to go roast and that one's going to heaven. That one's a good fish and that one's a bad fish. Because we ask ourselves the question, who are the bad fish? But that's none of our business. And one of the things that I've had to learn as a Christian, but also as a pastor, is that I'm always in danger of usurping God's sovereign control only over salvation when I think I can assert that someone's a good fish or a bad fish. A little story behind that is, I was once a bad fish. I didn't always know God. As a matter of fact, I was antagonistically against God. I grew up homeless, going from house to house, trash can to trash can, watching my mother use drugs. Uh, not going to go into all the details because of uh, young ears. It wasn't until I was 15 that I professed Christ. It wasn't until I was 15 that I was ready to agree with the fact that there was a God because it was up until the point that I was 15 that I was hungry and I was homeless and I could care less about anything that didn't have anything to do with those first two things. I don't know who my father is. I do not have a pedigree. And if you would have seen me before Christ found me, you would have definitely said, that's a bad fish. I didn't go to the extent of drug use that my mother did, but I, I definitely used. Uh, if you're familiar with um, urban concepts, Brian, forgive me. I also claim set, which means that uh, I like to run with a particular group of people. Um, I did a lot of things that I'm not proud of. Definitely a bad fish. But wait, I'm preaching. What the world? <laughs> My mind cannot comprehend the me now, who is, by the way, still a sinner, fallen short of the glory of God, and just held in the hand of Jesus. 
but I can't comprehend. That was also me. And I experienced the rejection from Christians. A, because, again, I was antagonistic towards that thought. Oh, there's a God, yeah. But B, man, like they, they labeled me because they wanted to know the question, who are the bad fish? And I'm proud to say that that was none of their business. And we would do well to remember. We would do well to remember that it's none of our business. Because we don't know anything about God's sovereign control over salvation because he and he alone is sovereignly in control over salvation and not us. So that's the first question. Second question is why are there bad fish? And, of course, these roll into one another. How are we looking on time? All right, don't somebody throw something at me if I do too much. All right, why are there bad fish? Right? See, we can kind of get in our feels, too, about this, especially as a church, especially as a church plant, because we're wanting to grow, and we're wanting to experience all the glories of that growth. And I'm just kind of quantifying it here to a church plant. There, there are many areas where we can apply this, but, you know, there are people who come in among our gathering who we don't see anymore because they've gone out, right? We've had brothers and sisters come in, and they hit the baptismal waters. As the writer of Hebrews says, they enjoy the enlightenment of salvation, right? They get to experience all of those things. They serve alongside us, and where are they at today? They're not here. And so that gets us in our fields a little bit because we're like, wait, that's not supposed to happen. They're not supposed to do that. Why would they do that to us? City Light needs them. Grace Community needs them. Why are there bad fish? And to answer that question, I would like to also say it's none of your business. It's none of my business because God is only sovereignly, control, sovereignly in control over salvation. There are going to be seasons in your life as a believer where there are fish swimming in and out and around you as we are all being gathered up in this great big net that's going to be pulled ashore one day. And they're not always going to stick around and do what they said they were going to do. And it's not your responsibility to get offended when they leave. You can mourn for your brother or your sister, but you cannot put yourself in control over their salvation as you ask, why are there bad fish? It's affecting me. That's the second question. Third question, and probably the most important, am I a bad fish? A little bit of that is your business. You see, God is only sovereignly in control over our salvation, only, alone. And it's he that does the drawing and the saving. Quoted from the book of Romans earlier, God is going to have mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy. He's going to show grace to whom he chooses to show grace. Has nothing to do with us. And that's a concept that is going to enrich your Christian life if you'll get that. To know that God is in control of that. It's still good to ask the question, am I a bad fish? 
The Lord gives us this dualistic life to live. The dualism has nothing to do with our salvation. Only he has everything to do with our salvation. But it has everything to do with our sanctification in the way that we live before we go to glory, in the way that we swim before the net is drawn to shore. So am I a bad fish? Yeah, ask yourself that question. And ask yourself that question every moment you praise God for his grace. Now, I'm not talking about worm theology. Uh, you can look that up, Google it if you want to. This concept of uh, woe is me, poor sinner, I cannot celebrate my salvation. That's a caveat in a particular theological stance that is destructive to our sanctification. But what I am talking about is our need to understand, just like the Apostle Paul, that in one step, I am the chief of sinners. And in the next step, there is therefore now no condemnation. In one step, the thing that I want to do, I can't do, I don't do. In the next step, yet here I am. All things are worked out for my good and his glory. This dualistic life that Paul even models for us is a life where we can only appropriately appreciate God's grace and the fact that he is only sovereign. He is the only sovereignty over salvation. So let's ask ourselves the question, am I a bad fish? And let's ask ourselves that question until the day that we die. Will it remove us from the hand of Jesus? No, he said so. Nothing can snatch us out. Even more so than that, we're in the hand of the Father. And we're definitely not going anywhere than that, from that. But what it will do is give us the ability to remember the answers to the first two questions. If we keep ourselves in a posture of pursuing God's grace in our lives, we will be effective with the gospel. We'll be able to be the evangelist that this parable is not talking about. We will be effective in our families. Man in our immediate spheres of influence, whether that be at work or, you know, whatever it is, if you're a single mom and you're parenting together with other moms, wherever it is, we'll be effective and more effective there because we've had that question asked to our Father, even just that day, am I a bad fish? Now, we can declare for his glory and our good, praise God I'm not, but Lord, help me never to forget that I once was. Amen? So there was one point that I wanted us to get, and that was that God is sovereign over salvation alone. And this parable, the parable of the net or the dragnet, while it's a parable given to us discussing the gathering of fish, fishing, concept of bringing things in, it's not a parable about evangelism. It's a parable about God's sovereignty over salvation and the end of times. It's a parable that speaks the truth of the distinctive between there is righteous and there is evil. It's a parable that teaches us that we ought to make sure that we are also willing to say there is a place where the righteous go, there is a place where the evil go. A place that you don't want to be. And it does beg our attention to ponder over who are the bad fish, but answer correctly, it's none of our business. Why are there bad fish? Answer correctly. It's none of our business. But am I a bad fish? Answer correctly. God's in control of my salvation. 
May I never forget that I need it. Amen. I'm going to invite you to pray with me as I end my portion of this worship gathering. Father God, I am thankful that you have given us.